0: If I have the luxury of time and I would walk down and, and do like uh, they do, you know, interviewing a man on the street, and I come and I really talk to each of you individually and I say, I would ask you, what does Christmas represent to you? And I'm not saying what does Christmas mean because even people outside the church know what Christmas means. I'm talking about what does Christmas represent? And the answers, I'm sure, would vary from one to one. I'm sure some people would respond and say, well, you know, really, it represents stressful time for me. (laughs) Honest answer. Others would say, well, it really represents deep anger and disappointment at how Christmas has become so commercialized that the real meaning has now disappeared. That would be right, too. Others would say, well, it really represents loneliness and to me, it represents uh, grief and, and sorrow and sadness and, and to some even depression. Some would say, no, but really what Christmas represents to me is the true meaning of Christmas, what Christmas is all about, namely the joy that God came to earth, and the joy that I have been set free from sin, the joy that I am being now received already eternal life, and that the moment I close my eyes in death, I know by the sh- most assuredly that I'll be in heaven with Him. The privilege of knowing that God became man to redeem everyone who would come to Him. The list could go on. But then I thought, if I had the privilege, and again the luxury, of being able to go and interview the original cast of that first Christmas, You know the original cast of First Christmas, Mary and Joseph? If I have the privilege of asking Mary, tell me what what that First Christmas represented to you, and and she probably would say, I will always remember the agony and the pain and the bewilderment of being pregnant when I had not been with a man. And she would probably say that uh, In the midst of this, I remember the comfort that came as a result of the angel speaking to me and telling me that of all the women in Israel, I'm now privileged to carry the Messiah. She would tell you about her visit with Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mom, and and she probably would explain in detail the shepherd's visit to her and, and maybe gives us a little more detail about what those gifts were like, those three gifts that came from the astronomers in Persia that came such a long distance. I'm sure she would tell us about the terror that terrorized her neighborhood when King Herod began to kill all those babies, and, and how she and Joseph and the baby had to escape at the cover of night all the way to Egypt. As a matter of fact, it was Mary herself who told Luke so many of these accounts, as he, as an honest historian, writing down from the eyewitnesses. If you would ask Joseph, what about that first Christmas, Joseph? He would say, well, I can't forget the incredible painful days of struggling about wanting to quietly break up the betrothal, break up the engagement His deep anguish and confusion about being assured and knows Mary's purity and yet this pregnancy. How do I explain that to people? It was a very confusing time. Probably he tossed and turned at night and how are we going to explain this? But he too would have told us all about the joy of seeing and hearing the angel explaining to him what this is all about. This is the hope and the dreams of all of Israel, for all these generations who are waiting, for they are the ones to be used as the instrument of God and the joy that that created in them. For back then, every Jewish girl was not looking to or dreaming of good college education and career. Every Jewish girl was dreaming of being the mother of the Messiah. But then, every one of us must stop and ask, What would Jesus say? about that first Christmas? What would he say about his birth? What is Christmas according to Jesus? Well, I'm so grateful that he did tell us. We don't have to guess at it. I want you to turn with me, please, to the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 5, 6, and 7. Hebrews 10, 5, 6, and 7. And there we're going to find Christmas according to Jesus. Therefore, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offering and sin offering, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Father, will you please open our spiritual eyes that we may not only just see the truth... But let the truth set us free in Jesus name. Amen. In three short verses, the Bible tells us the Christmas story according to Jesus. And I promise you that there are very few people <laughs> would focus on this around Christmas time. For the word of God tells us that Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment of Psalm 40 where those words came from. Psalm 40 is being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is telling us that Christmas, His Christmas, His birth, had a distinct purpose. No one, no one, no one before Him or after Him has ever been born for a distinct purpose. Ah, to be sure, (laughs) all parents would have purpose for their children they have dreams and aspira- aspirations. Uh, when a baby is born, parents uh, hope uh, and anticipate that their baby will grow up to accomplish something good, something great. Christian parents always, always long to see that their babies um, be, grow up and be kept from sin and be kept from harm, uh, that their Child be be able to serve the Lord in his uh, or her chosen profession, uh, that they will grow up to be godly leaders. Oh, but that's the parents. (laughs) Those are the parents' aspirations, not the baby. Baby doesn't know. But Jesus was different. He's different. Jesus' consciousness of his coming was for a specific purpose. He knew he was born. For a distinct purpose. And he spelled it out here, I have come to do your will, O God. Now, I know human nature the way it is. And at Christmas time, we, we often neglect that distinct purpose. We, we get all mushy and sentimental about the baby in the manger, and, and we forget really what it's all about. We run around and get tired and exhausted, and, and we leave out the most important reason for Christmas. I'll never forget um, several years ago, SDS invited me to come and pray with them, and then they had a a special gathering at the end of the academic year where they were giving testimonies. All the students were giving their testimony. Well, one testimony I guess I'll never forget and happened to be that person I baptized as a baby. And her testimony went something like this. She said, um, when I was young and I would come to church on Christmas Eve with my parents… And uh, I hear Dr. Youssef preaching about the cross. I used to get angry. I get annoyed. <laughs> and she went on to say that she got so frustrated one time that she turned to her mother and she said, does he not know it is Christmas? <laughs> and then her testimony continued. She said, I grew up in years and... In My faith and realized that the cross is the purpose for Christmas. For if it was not for the cross, there would have been no Christmas. And that's what Jesus is saying here in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5, 6, and 7. You see, you've got to understand, for those of you who have studied the epistle to the Hebrew, it's really very simple. It is a contrast. The entire epistle is just a contrast, like two columns. You see? The Old Testament, the New Testament. Contrast, contrast, the whole epistle. A contrast between Old Testament sin offering and sacrifices and the New Testament ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. A contrast between the old and inadequate sacrifices and the perfect sacrifice in Jesus in the New Testament. A contrast between the shadow and the real A contrast between the temporary sacrifice that never took away sin or permanently remove it and the permanent sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you miss this, you miss what Christmas is all about. Jesus did not only come with a distinct purpose, but He also had knowledge of that purpose. It's one thing to have a noble purpose, And it's quite another to accomplish that noble purpose. But Jesus not only had a distinct purpose for his birth, he fulfilled that purpose. (laughs) Lots of people have wonderful purpose in life, but never fulfill it. But not Jesus. He was born for a purpose. He came with the full knowledge of that purpose, and he fulfilled it. Why? because he was both God, fully God, and fully man. As man, he died on the cross. As God, he died to pay that infinite price that was necessary for salvation. No one, no one, but no one could have paid that price except him. In fact, there's a story told about a young man who enrolled in the Russian army. And because... His father was a friend of the Tsar Necklace I. They gave him a very responsible position in the army. They made him the paymaster. It was his sole responsibility to ensure that the right amount of money goes to the right soldier or right officer month after month. This young man meant well, but his character was not up to this enormous responsibility that has been given to him. And he got hooked up on gambling. True story. He got hooked on gambling, became addicted to gambling. And like all addicts, he started with gambling his own money, but then he couldn't stop, so he began to gamble the government money, the army money. And in due course, the young man received a notice from a representative of the czar that that representative is now coming to audit the books. At that moment, he knew that he was in trouble. So he went through the books, and he totaled all the funds that he owed the government, that he owed the army, and, and then he counted the pitiful money that he had in his pocket. And he realized that the debt was so enormous is indescribable. He looked at that huge debt and and looked at his own pitiful amount of money, and he became so overwhelmed with the enormity of that debt. He knew at that moment that he's ruined. He knew that he has been disgraced, that his father has been disgraced, now that his family is going to be disgraced. And so he decided that the only way out is to take his own life. And so he took his revolver and he placed it at the desk in front of him. And he wrote the summation of his misdeeds. And then he wrote at the bottom, at the ledger, the amount of the debt. But then below that he wrote the following words. A great debt who can pay. Then he decided that at the stroke of midnight, he would take his own life. As the evening wore off, he got drowsy, and, and he went to sleep. That night, Tsar Nicholas I was making the rounds around the barracks, as had always been his customs. Seeing the lights on, so he decided to come, and he came in, And he looked and he saw the young man asleep. He immediately recognized him as this is the son of his friend. And as he looked over the shoulder of the young man and saw the ledger there, he immediately recognized what had happened. And while he was just about to wake him up in order to put him under arrest, when a moment of magnanimity surged in him, At that moment, it was when his eyes fell on those words. A great debt. Who can pay? Suddenly, with that surge of magnanimity, he reached out and wrote below those words only one word. One word. The young man who was sleeping fitfully suddenly woke up to realize as he looked at the clock, there was past midnight. And so he reached for his revolver, and as he reached for that revolver, he looked at the ledger, and then he saw something that was not there before. Under the words that he wrote, such great debt, who can pay? There was one word written there, Nicholas. Nicholas. He was dumbfounded. He didn't understand how the signature of the Czar came to be here. It wasn't there when he went to sleep. He, there must have been a mistake, something wrong. And he went to the safe and he grabbed some official papers from the safe where the signature of the Czar is there, and he would compare it with the signature on his ledger, and he said, "It's the same. It's the same signature." It was identical. It was the czar's signature. And he thought to himself, the czar must have been here while I was asleep. He has seen the books. He knows everything, and yet he forgave me. He forgave me. The young soldier trusted in the word of the czar, and the next morning, sure enough, a messenger from the palace came with the exact amount of money that is needed to repay his debt. See, that time only the czar could have paid that great debt. No one else in all of Russia could have paid that amount of money. Only the czar could pay it, and the czar paid it. Beloved, there is no human illustration that can even come close to explaining what God did when He left the glories of heaven, became an embryo in a virgin's womb, God of very God to become a baby in the Bethlehem. Nothing can illustrate that. There is nothing that can explain the coming of the God of very God to the earth in order to pay your debt and my debt. No one was perfect enough to be able to pay that debt. When every one of us looked at perfection that is demanded for us for entry into heaven, and we looked and we said, it's impossible. Who can make it? None of us can be that perfect. It is an impossibility. It's such a great debt. Who can pay? The Lord Jesus Christ, on that first Christmas, He stepped out of heaven. He stepped out from heaven, and He signed His name with His own precious blood, Jesus the Christ. He could pay. He alone could pay. He alone could pay all of our debt. He alone can redeem us from the slavery of sin. He alone can save us from the punishment of sin. He alone can deliver us from the wrath that is to come. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. I have come. To do your will, O oh God. That is Christmas, according to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. The Lord Jesus, who is the fulfillment of Psalm 40, literally read, "I am delighted to do your will. I'm delighted to do your will. But I must confess, as I read this, I'm delighted. Or I delight in doing your will. (laughs) Two things happened. I began to ask myself, can I really say that? Can I always say, I delight to do your will, O God? And the answer is no. And many times I questioned the will of God. But something more important than that, something far, far more important, I began to ask myself, could Jesus really be delighted to come to earth? Could he possibly be delighted to leave out the privileges to turn his back on the glory and the splendor and the majesty that he enjoyed as the eternal Son of God? Could he really be delighted? Could he really be delighted to come to this miserable, sinful earth? Could he really be delighted to become the lowest of the low and the poorest of the poor? Could he really be delighted To receive these whips on his back and evildoers spitting on his face, slapping him on the face, crowning him with thorns. Could he really be delighted when his hands and his feet were fastened to a wooden cross with a nail? Could he really be delighted? And for whom? Evildoers like me and you. People who turn their backs on him. As much as our emotions can run wild, the truth is, yes, yes, He was delighted. He delighted. He did not do it reluctantly. He did not do it begrudgingly. He did not do it angrily. No. He did it with joy. Jesus was delighted to do the will of the Father. And, beloved, that is what Christmas is all about. No wonder the angels were joyful when they announced to the shepherds that the Savior has come. And the reason that we are joyful at Christmas, not the presents, not the parties, and not all the celebrations, and and not even what the world called the spirit of the season. It's really the Holy Spirit, but they don't know what to call Him, so they call Him the spirit of the season. It's not just a story that we tell kids at Christmas time. No. No, That's not the secret of joy. But the reason for joy is because Jesus was joyful when he came into our world as our only Savior and Lord. And that is why we are joyful at Christmas time. Because he was joyful. I want you to hear me right here, please. I heard with those ears. Clergy from pulpit's. Who have described the Christmas story as a fable and a myth. Some of you will be shocked, others you would not, but how many clergy believe that? It's a fable, and it's a myth. I want to submit to you this morning. Had it been a really fable or a myth, it would have ended a long time ago. But for 2,000 years, the world comes to a standstill on that day. And do you know why? Because the one who came 2,000 years ago still comes today... He comes today in the person of the Holy Spirit. He comes to you, and He comes to me. He comes to meet us at our very point of need. And our greatest desperate need is that for us to know as sinners that we are forgiven. Uh, that our chain has been broken and we've been set free. That uh, we are now free not to sin. That's what freedom is about in the New Testament. That we are free from guilt. That we're free from condemnation. That we are free from doubt and fear. That we are free to know that we will be with him for eternity in heaven. So the one who came still comes. That's the power of the gospel. He comes to somebody in the distant tribes of Indonesia, in the backwaters of Philippines, in the heart of Africa, in the Middle East. We see it. Every single day, hundreds, thousands of people. And I pray every day, Lord, don't let me be jaded when I I hear this story, people coming to Christ, but Christ really is coming to them. Every day we get stories of how Christ, who came 2,000 years ago, still comes, still comes, still comes. He came to you, and you received Him. But there may be one here today. Who would say, I know I've heard the message, but I've never opened my heart for him to come in, cleanse me from my sin, and set me free. You can invite him today. You can invite him because he's knocking on the door. He's waiting to come in. Place your trust in him. For the one who came comes again and again and again, but not forever. The Bible said the day will come when the door of opportunity is going to be shut. He comes today. As a matter of fact, Phillips Brooks, one of the fine theologians of yesteryear, he wrote some hymns, and one of his most famous carol is, O Little Town of Bethlehem. This one stanza illustrate, explain exactly what I'm talking about. And he wrote, How Silently how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of His heaven. No ear may hear His coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive Him still, the dear Christ enters in. May He enter every heart and every home Father, we are privileged to have your Word 2,000 years later. We thank you that the one who came 2,000 years ago still comes today. And I no doubt the Holy Spirit has spoken to hundreds and thousands of ears today. May he penetrate deep into minds and hearts and so that many would open their hearts and receive him. For I pray that In the mighty name, that name, Jesus, to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Amen.